0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. In 2012, Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek published his 1,000-page tome, Less Than Nothing, following it up in 2014 with its shorter reformulation, Absolute Recoil. The books offered substantial reformulations of his own theories, but also in-depth engagements with a number of his influences, especially Hegel and Lacan. Joining me to talk about some of these developments is Adrian Johnston, author of A New German Idealism, Hegel, Zizek, and Dialectical Materialism, from Columbia University Press in 2018. Adrian Johnston is Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Philosophy at the University of New Mexico and is a faculty member at the Emory Psychoanalytic Institute in Atlanta. He is the author of around a dozen books, including Zizek's Ontology in 2008 and Badu, Zizek, and Political Transformations in 2009, as well as being the co-editor with Zizek himself and Todd McGowan of the book series Diuresis, all from Northwestern University Press. So, Adrian Johnston, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very much looking forward to uh, our discussion.
0: Yeah, so... Um, before we dive in, um, we usually ask uh, guests to kind of introduce themselves and kind of talk about a lot of their their main academic interests. Obviously, Zizek is a key one for you, but it also connects or you kind of connect it to a number of other fields. So can you kind of uh, give listeners a sense of what your overall philosophical interests are?
1: Yes. Well, starting with Zizek as a point of reference, uh, what he and I share most in common uh, are our set of interests and a commitment to interfacing those with each other in a systematic fashion. Um, And so for both of us, there are three main orientations that we each uh, conjure with and that you know we seek to uh, weave together in, in, in various ways. And that would be German idealism, uh, so Kant, Fichte, Schelling, Hegel, and some of the figures surrounding them. Um, secondly, Marxism, so the Marxist tradition from Marx and Engels themselves all the way up through the present. And third and finally, Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalysis. And these three European Intellectual traditions or orientations um, are crucial for both Zizek and myself Um, and we are both interested in developing a systematic philosophical framework uh, that is grounded on an ontology informed by all three of these sources Um, and In terms of, uh, you know, some of my other interests that are related to, you know, what I've just sketched, um, I, uh, in the past decade or so of my work, have spent a lot of time looking at connections between uh, this project of a systematic philosophical framework with an ontology and theory of subjectivity, bringing together these three European sources of inspiration, um, interfacing this with Um, On the one hand, the natural sciences, and for me particularly, um, neurobiology, Zizek has become increasingly uh, more interested in and committed to uh, engaging with quantum physics. Um, And then also, of course, uh, contemporary political theory. Um, So the connection between this kind of philosophical framework and both science and politics um, is, you know, keeps me busy, let's say, and will probably keep me busy for a good number of years to come, um, in terms of my ongoing research work.
0: Yeah, you've definitely got a lot to work with. Um, so to kind of get things going and dig into the book, it's pretty technical, so we can't cover everything, but I want to kind of tease out some of the key arguments. Um, so to kind of start off, um, Zizek's attempt to recover and kind of reanimate Hegel throughout some of his more recent texts, involves an attempt to recapture uh, not just the moves he was making, but kind of understand them in their own intellectual context. And in the spirit of recovering this context, you spend some time in the beginning of the book kind of unpacking kind of in the wake of Kant and to some degree Spinoza, the discussions going on between like Schelling. And Fichte and Jacobi, can you kind of unpack uh, what the major questions were at this time that Hegel would be intervening in? Yes, um,
1: but I want to make a prefatory remark that I think will be very helpful for addressing uh, a number of the subsequent questions that uh, you have prepared for me and hegel is 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 an extremely interesting case in terms of uh, a canonical figure in the Western philosophical tradition. Um, it's been noted several times by commentators that uh, basically, if you know someone utterly unfamiliar with our cultural context, with no knowledge of the history of philosophy or history of ideas more broadly, um, were to be presented with um, a representative sample, a kind of you know sizable cross section of philosophical literature in which the name Hegel is, is mentioned or even featured centrally, that this person, whether, you know, someone with no knowledge of the culture or say, you know, an, you know, an intelligent alien, you know, were to read all of these things about Hegel, that the most reasonable conclusion that this individual would reach would be that there were um, many, many different philosophers who all happened to be named Hegel. Um, and in terms of Hegel's reception from his own lifetime up through the present, um, he is rendered in just a a teeming multitude of incommensurable fashions um, that, you know, for example, uh, you know, in the 1830s and 1840s that, uh, you know, of course, Marx and Engels emerged out of uh, the Berlin-centered young left Hegelian group. Um, But, you know, in terms of politics, there were, you know, far-right, far left and everything in between you know versions of Hegel in terms of thinking about Hegel's relationship to religion there's readings that run the gamut from he is a particularly virulent and insidious atheist to he is you know, an Orthodox uh, Protestant, you know, who's looking to make Protestant theology, you know, the very ground of of philosophy itself as a discipline. And again, everything in between. Um, And of course, his name has not only divided people politically from the 1830s through the present, but you also see in terms of the subsequent trajectory of of Western philosophy um, that Hegel is very much involved in the split that emerges at the turn of the previous century between the analytic and continental traditions with um, analytic philosophy originating in part as a virulent reaction against uh 19th century British Hegelianism. And based on that, what people like Russell Moore and company took Hegel to be about. Um, so he's uh, so there've been struggles around Hegel and claiming Hegel's legacy um, that have, you know, you could say have been, constants uh, over the course of the past two centuries of western philosophy and and associated branches of of theory and practice in the Western cultural context. So, it, you know, Hegel is a lightning rod for a lot of issues and it makes him, you know, an interesting figure to deal with in part because of this complicated reception. Um, and indeed a lot of what's at stake in terms of what people like Zizek and myself, as well as those we disagree with amongst our contemporaries are doing is a, a you know, con- Continuing some of these struggles that have been going on for quite a while. So, that I think is important just to bear in mind as a a kind of um, just background contextual factor here uh, surrounding issues having to do with Hegel in particular. But to really, you know, now to get to the the heart of your question. in my view, at least when it comes to the core of Zizek's properly philosophical interests and his investment in forging a materialist ontology that also includes a theory of subjectivity, um, that here German idealism, and especially German idealism in its later phases, as it is represented by Schelling and Hegel in their shared Pushback against aspects of Kant's and Fichte's philosophies—that what both Schelling and Hegel are interested in, starting in the mid 1790s and continuing on, you know, through the rest of both of their intellectual itineraries. What both of them are are interested in doing is bringing together something along the lines of Spinoza's radically monistic ontology that, uh, you know, is indeed can be seen as proximate to. Certain versions of materialism or naturalism, how to commit to an ontology that is radically monist in, in, in you know, in the vein of of Spinoza's metaphysics, um, but to do so in a way that, unlike with Spinoza, does not result in a kind of hard-nosed determinism and subject-squelching reductivism that says that the only thing that really exists is this trans individual, impersonal, anonymous substance, whether you know Spinoza calls it alternately God and nature, and that you know human subjectivity as involving individuated agency, a capacity for uh, ref- uh, uh, reflective deliberation, self-determination, etc., that human-mindedness and like-mindedness and the, the agency that seems to be involved with that, that all of that is an illusion and that when we you know penetrate the veil of appearances, when we see through this facade – you know, we realize that, you know, it's just this one single soul substance running the show and that, you know, we aren't the individual agents we like to think of ourselves as being. Um, and in the wake of Kant and Fichte, Schelling and Hegel want to find a way to affirm this model of autonomous subjectivity that is central to Kant's and Fichte's philosophies, but in a way that can be rendered compatible with something, you know, uh, Kant and Fichte reject, which is a kind of uh, ontological monism a la Spinoza that would indeed be compatible with materialist or naturalist sensibilities. And so this compatibilism, this bringing together of, uh, you might say, material substance and human subjectivity. Schelling and Hegel are both after versions of this, and, and this is central to Zizek's work as well, and you know, taking into account after Hegel and Schelling, developments such as Marxism and psychoanalysis is part of this. And Hegel puts it in the form of a slogan um, early on in the preface to his famous 1807 Phenomenology of Spirit. Um, Hegel talks about the need, contra just a, an unqualified Spinozism. Hegel uh, implores us to try to think substance also as subject. Um, and that, I think, is a nice formulation of what Zizek and myself are after as well. And simply put, you might say that what we want is a materialism with a subject rather than materialism as we often think of it in its more reductive guises. It says our sense of being minded subjects is an illusion that can be dissolved by you know, present best science or what have you, and that we can see that it really is just anonymous impersonal matter in motion, and anything over and above that is just, you know, a sterile epiphenomenon.
0: Yeah. So Right. Um one of the most important aspects and one of the first things you kind of pick up with Zizek's reading of Hegel is his claim that Hegel ontologized Kant, um although you also kind of point out how he kind of wiggles around, but this was um, one of the most kind of central claims to your first book on Zizek about 10 years ago. Um, Can you kind of unpack what it means to kind of ontologize Kant or move from Kant to Hegel?
1: Well, I, I, with good reason, I I strongly suspect that some of Zizek's uh, uh, qualifications or apparent uh, rejections of this, this, language about Hegel ontologizing Kant, um, this first surfaces in, in, in less than nothing from 2012. And by that point, um, you know, he, of course had already read, you know, some of the earlier renditions of his work, uh, that I had put together, such as Eject's Ontology from 2008. Um, and I think that, you know, he got worried that there might be something misleading, uh, or at least potentially misleading, in that formulation. Um, and so I, in what you're asking about in, in a new German idealism, you know, I address this, this, uh, you know, new kind of oscillation or qualification that pops up in less than nothing. And I think that it's not that he's rejecting what I meant when I, in my previous work, described, uh, you know, his version of Hegel is centered on this idea of ontologizing Kant. Um, It's a qualification that, uh, you know, involves saying, look, if we assume that ontology, and when we talk about ontology as, as a philosophical discipline, you know, theory of being at its most fundamental level, if we assume that being at its most fundamental level is ultimately some sort of unity oneness wholeness self-consistency grand totality etc any picture of being in that vein if that's what you know ontology as a theory of being addresses then indeed Zizek would be right to say hegel by no means ontologizes kant if an ontology automatically entails commitment to a picture of being in this vein as unified etc um, but, you know, as Zizek knows full well, um, there are certain ontologies, for instance, you know, his uh, one of another of his favorite references, the contemporary French philosopher Alain Badiou, who attempts to develop an ontology based on uh, post-Cantorian transfinite set theory, the mathematical discipline um, that in, in the guise that uh, Badiou favors it is the what's called the Zermelo-Frankel uh Axiomatization of set theory. But you know, Badu, having recourse to mathematics and specifically set theory, wants to develop a theory of being as pure multiplicity and as as devoid of any kind of fundamental unity or underlying oneness. Um, so, you know, you don't have to automatically think of being as one, all, whole, total, etc., when you do ontology. But if you assume that ontology has to presuppose or posit this kind of picture of being, then you would have to say, no, it's not correct to say Hegel ontologizes Kant. Because what Hegel does, um, and this is what Zizek, uh, you know, I think still uh, holds as a central move um, all the way up through his present word. You know, what Hegel does is he takes the entire second half of Kant's critique of pure reason uh, uh, that is uh, entitled, uh, you know, transcendental dialectic. Uh, And whereas for Kant, um, whenever we run into anything dialectical that involves antagonism, conflict, contradiction, you know, incommensurability, irreconcilability, etc., Kant thinks, well, anytime you encounter that uh, at the level of thinking, that means that you are you are definitely stuck within the confines of thinking as separate from being itself, you know, independently of our thinking. Um, and so for Kant, uh it's a key assumption in his first critique that if we encounter deadlocks internal to our thought, if we find that, you know, we're confronted with incommensurable propositions about the nature of reality, well, that means that we failed to actually gain access to reality independently of our thinking. And we're instead stuck, you know, boxing with problems that are, you know, within the, you know, the shadow theater of our mental lives is separate from being apart from us. And, you know, what Hegel does is that he he indicates that Kant. Even against his own epistemological strictures, Kant presupposes a picture of being that assumes that among other things, it doesn't contain any inconsistencies, that it is devoid of of conflict or or incommensurabilities, um, that being is fundamentally at one with itself, you know, it's it's entirely consistent, it's a seamless, you know, integrated web. And Kant claims we can't have any knowledge of how things are in themselves apart from our thinking, yet he presumes a, a certain minimal characteristic about being in itself. And Hegel, by problematizing Kant's very manner of attempting to maintain this strict distinction between thinking and being, um, ends up, you know, uh, to his own satisfaction at least, and I think to it's demonstrating that no, in fact, being itself, apart from thinking, also contains these dialectical elements. Um, and in that sense, then, we could say, yeah, you know, Hegel indeed ontologizes specifically the dialectics that, uh, that Kant brings to light in the first critique. Um, so, I, and I think that that description Gijek would still agree with, despite saying, well, If we assume that the being that's at stake in ontology as a theory of being is free of contradiction, self-consistent, et cetera, then we shouldn't say that Hegel ontologizes Kant.
0: Okay. Um, Thank you for that. Um, One of the most, kind of moving on, one of the most important elements you then turn to in Zizek's recent work is the nature of appearance as opposed to immediate perception. So can you kind of unpack these Two terms, and what sorts of implications you draw um, for the relationship between beliefs and reality?
1: Yes, well, this the 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 point of reference in Hegel's corpus here. The 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 key moment, um, you know, in Hegel's body of work would be the first three chapters that form the first major section of Hegel's eighteen oh seven Phenomenology of Spirit, Um, and those first three chapters uh, starts with. You know, what would seem to be most immediate and and straightforwardly given in terms of experience. So this is a phenomenology, it starts with experience. And seemingly the for Hegel, the most elementary, simple, zero-level form of experience is, is what he calls sense. Um, and it's sense a la this this opening chapter on quote-unquote sense certainty and that for hegel you know if we take for instance you know the most simplistic you know non philosophical even anti intellectual standpoint and assume that all right i you know here you know here is the world just immediately disclosing itself um and that sense would be the idea that you know what i uh you know, register, you know, in terms of my sensory perceptual capacities um, that I don't even theorize that. I just take the contents of sense to simply be reality as it is, just, you know, there presenting itself and, um, you know, in sensing it, I know it and that's that. Um, And then Hegel proceeds in chapters two and three to show that this seemingly unproblematic, you know, uh, you know, utterly unsophisticated, not at all philosophical, metaphysical, et cetera, uh, naive, realist, uh, immersion in the world as disclosed by sense, um, you know it ends up you know having to when it thinks through what it's it's trying to claim about how things are, that it's driven to adopt a very different set of attitudes towards what previously it treated as straightforward sense content. And for Hegel, for instance, um, let's take the term sense and and appearance and indeed, you know we'll we will use this in order to address the question about appearance. So, you know, for Hegel, there's a big difference between if I just take what I am experiencing in terms of sense as simply this is reality and it's immediately, you know, disclosed to me and it is what it is, it's self evident, you know, there it is, full stop. Um, That there's a world of difference between that versus if I treat that same experiential content as now not just the immediate disclosure of reality, but rather as a kind of mediating surface on the other side of which there is something uh, that doesn't directly disclose itself. So if I say, okay, sense is now instead to be viewed as, well, there's what I sense, and then there's something beyond, behind, or beneath what I sense that is responsible for giving rise to that sensory content. I've shifted uh, in terms of how I spontaneously interpret the content of my experience in terms of sense. And now I'm dealing with sense not as just sense, but as appearance, right? Appearance is the idea that it's not just that, you know, what I sense is the direct and immediate disclosure of things themselves, I now assume that there is a distinction between things themselves and then how they show up for me, how they register that is distinct from those things themselves. So there's the appearing and then there is what appears and the what that appears is to be distinguished from its, its, its appearance or its appearing. And for Hegel, right, this, these are not the same thing. Although we could say on a certain level, it's the same experiential content, um, that it's that experiential content interpreted in two very different ways, right? For Hegel, the figure shape of consciousness he calls sense certainty, interprets sense as this is the thing itself, just directly revealed through sense. Whereas that same experiential content shows up for the figure shape of consciousness. Hegel calls um, uh, the understanding in the third chapter of the phenomenology as appearance, where it's, all right, there's what I sense, but what I sense is just an appearance beyond behind or beneath which there, there is the X that does the appearing. Um, and so, you know, one of the key lessons here you know, that Hegel is trying to bring out. And it's interesting, even, you know, uh, in the course of the past few decades, you know, there are certain uh, circles in analytic philosophy that originated in a kind of anti-Hegelianism, you know, that has come to appreciate these first three chapters of Hegel's phenomenology um, as, among other things, indicating that in order to do justice to the nature of reality itself, we have to become aware of and inscribe ourselves as subjects that take positions and include ourselves within our picture of reality that you know it's is that I'm already you know even for sense certainty sense certainty would say you know my own mind or subjectivity is not at all responsible for the content. the content is just the thing itself showing up, but you know for Hegel, that position already involves a certain you might say attitude, you know, disposition, stance, you know, or interpretive framework that the subject is responsible for without being consciously aware of that. And that of course throughout the phenomenology, you know, the different figures or shapes of consciousness begin to, you know, bring out ever more forcefully that our own subjectivity, you know, even in what appears to be the most objective neutral content, that we are part of the picture of reality, of objective reality, um, and that it shows up for us in the ways that it does, thanks to how we position ourselves, how we interpret the content, etc. And, you know, this is, of course, for Zizek's project of including, you know, subjectivity as an irreducible moment, uh, you know, within his metaphysical framework. You know, this is one of the things that he is, you know, extracting from this famous opening section on consciousness and the phenomenology of spirit.
0: Right. So moving on, you kind of start to pit um, various kind of contemporary variations of Hegelianism uh, against one another. Um, starting off, you argue there are kind of three main possible starting points for reading Hegel, being, essence, or concept. Um, you put Zizek and Pippin against each other. You argue Pippin uh, starts with the concept, Zizek with being. So to start with Pippin, you write he has kind of a Kantianized, deflated account of Hegel. Um, This is kind of following in Charles Taylor's footsteps, who kind of gave us a Hegel that was more friendly to the analytic Anglo-American philosophical tradition. Can you kind of explain what this deflated Hegelianism is?
1: Yes, and uh, before I do that, I realized very quickly, uh, and I can be quite brief about this, I forgot to address your question about belief in reality that was part of the previous uh a set of questions and you know what i could say about that is you know simply you know for hegel as i just talked about him in terms of the opening chapters of the phenomenology and chezek um it would be that our own beliefs um are part of the very reality that we are attempting to formulate a picture of and so you know the idea of a reality that we could get at separate from our beliefs um would be you know, nothing for us. Um, And that more, but at the same time, um, it's not that, you know, our beliefs are, you know, some sort of, you know, transcendent, separate, you know, reality, or not even a reality, just, you know, something that, you know, is or could be bracketed off you know, from, you know, the reality we're trying to describe that internal to the ontological dimension, you know, as part of it, um, are, are very beliefs about, you know, this dimension. Um, and so, you know, and, you know, Hegel, the Hegelian sensibility that's crucial for Zizek here is that, um, you know, as you could put it for Hegel, the notion of the concrete apart from the abstract is itself the height of abstraction. You know, and so, like, the idea of belief as abstract, separate from reality as concrete, you know, would itself be. Um, you know, a peculiar sort of belief that isn't really tenable, and that, you know, the only really defensible option from a Hegelian standpoint is to, you know, find a way to make explicit for ourselves and spell out how our beliefs are part of the very reality that they are beliefs about. Um, And to have a more robust picture of reality is including within itself beliefs about reality. But that follow up uh, out of the way. So, you know, in terms of deflationary Hegelianism, Um, you know, perhaps the best way to begin answering this would be to say a little bit more about the history of this sort of approach going back to, as you correctly point out, um, Charles Taylor's 1975 hulking tome, simply entitled Hegel. Um, And, you know, in that work, uh, you know, Taylor, the position Taylor takes is that, um, yes, Hegel did have a metaphysics, but it is, Um, A, you know, ridiculous, implausible, outdated worldview or perspective that is best left in the dustbin of history. Yet at the same time, there are things in Hegel that are very valuable and that should indeed be salvaged and appreciated even by analytic philosophy philosophers. And that for Taylor, um, Hegel's metaphysics would be something along the lines of, I mean, it's a standard caricature that uh, opponents of Hegel frequently wheel out. And I think it's utterly indefensible, but it's to say that, you know, Hegel was some sort of theologically minded uh, pantheist or panpsychist um you know that he has the idea that there's some sort of godlike mega mind that would be some sort of cosmic world spirit um and that it uh, is a metaphysical reality that's the ultimate reality um and everything that we deal with here in this finite world of you know human beings you know nature etc this is this these are we are just puppets and playthings of this cosmic spirit um that uh you know in, in a very a deterministic fashion, um, you know, runs the show of our reality. And, you know, Taylor says, yes, Hegel has that as his metaphysics. That's clearly intellectually bankrupt at this point. We can throw that out. But... You know, there still are these aspects of Hegel well worth saving, and for Taylor, those would be you know the sides of Hegel that involve uh, drawing our attention, especially to um, you know historical and social dimensions, uh, and making you know uh, you know these social and historical features of ourselves central to philosophy itself. And indeed, I mean, on on one level, of course, Taylor is right um, that Hegel's way of integrating historical and social dimensions into his philosophy is an extremely important, innovative, valuable feature of his work, starting with texts like the 1807 Phenomenology. But at the same time, um i think hegel does have a metaphysics it's not the one that uh taylor rejects but what's happened after taylor is that a number of more analytically trained historians of philosophy you know who've decided to uh wrestle with hegel such as as robert pippin um what you know they've done is um in some cases i think they've gone so far in certain instances as to say well, where we disagree with Taylor is that Hegel doesn't actually have a metaphysics. He doesn't have the one that Taylor accuses him of. But he, he also doesn't pursue metaphysics, you know, in a more, a more recognizable traditional, you know, pre-Kantian fashion at all. Um, and Pippin, for instance, wants to say no. I mean, Hegel is basically a good Kantian, um, and you know, he thinks you know any attempt to develop Uh, the sorts of metaphysics that Kant critiqued in things like his critique of pure reason. um, that he essentially accepts those epistemological strictures and just seeks to more richly elaborate aspects of Kant's uh, transcendental idealism. I think that's wrong too, but that's, you know, that's, you know, something that Pippin has been, you know, a main advocate of. Um, And in terms of continuing with Taylor's emphasis on, you know, social, historical, also linguistic dimensions, um, Pippin's ally, the the analytic neo-Hegelian at Pittsburgh, Robert Brandom, you know, continues more in that sort of uh, Taylor-esque vein in terms of readings of Hegel. Um, Now, you know, uh, in terms of distilling out the essence of uh, deflationary Hegelianism, before I do that, I should say, just as a side, you know, right now, um, I, you know, I've had a series of back and forth exchanges very, you know, at this point, you know, hostile, you know, kind of uh, difficult exchanges with Pippin. You know, but I just had a lengthy essay come out uh, in the Warwick Journal of Philosophy entitled The Difference Between Fichte's and Hegel's Systems of Philosophy, a response to Robert Pippin, which gets into these issues in relation to Pippin's very recent book on Hegel's logic, as well as to a lesser extent, Brandom's uh, 800 page tome on Hegel's phenomenology that just came out earlier. Uh, well, yes, uh, of trust, yeah, trust, right. Of trust. Right. And so, and Zizek is involved in these debates too. So this is still kind of unfolding in terms of us all fighting over Hegel's legacy and, you know, how to interpret him in, di- uh, in different ways. Um, but with, with, uh, the kind of analytic, Deflationary hegelianism um, that is the lowest common denominator amongst figures like you know Taylor Pippin, and Brandom um you might say that uh you know this this would involve you know reading Hegel as you know an anti realist who doesn't think that we can make knowledge claims valid and legitimate knowledge claims about mind independent reality um uh, you know as as an anti materialist who wants to treat our subjectivity our mindedness and like mindedness you know what he calls geist you know spirit um as um you know utterly separate and distinct from what we take nature to be so pronounced anti naturalism um you know and and you know generally Uh, to assimilate Hegel to either a kind of Kantian transcendental epistemological framework, you know, or to make Hegel a kind of uh, social constructivist. Um, And so, you know, these are kind of the, the hallmark features of analytic deflationary Hegelianism. And, you know, I think that it really Hegel was much more metaphysically ambitious than this sort of approach to him is ready, willing, and able to acknowledge.
0: Yeah, that kind of opens up kind of the Zizekian pushback with regard to Hegel, yes. um, which kind of involves this, what you kind of call in times like a metaphysical reinflation. Um, and you also mirror it with Hegel's original pushback against Kantian subjectivism. So can you kind of unpack this kind of parallel track of reinflated metaphysical pushback against a kind of deflated subject i'm not sure if i'm articulating that well but
1: yeah and i mean here uh, you know i, I thus far I, I would guess my my answers have gone a little longer than 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 perhaps they should have but here i can be a bit briefer get based on some of what we've already got on the table now um that uh, for instance uh, deflationary hegelianism and especially the, like pippin's variety that seeks to assimilate Hegel to uh, the you know subject centered outlooks of Kant and Fichte um, that uh, for that sort of deflationary Hegelianism um, the claim would be that well we can never talk about you know reality over and above you know and reality as it would you know be you know in a way where it would be to some extent independent of, or, you know, and, or precede the, the genesis of thinking subjectivity that, you know, we are always going to be confined within the realm of a thinking, you know, that can never, you know, get beyond itself in terms of being able to talk about a form of radical objectivity or mind independence. Um, and that, uh, you know what uh that uh, you know if you accept uh, the you know the revolution in philosophy that is associated with German idealism starting with Kant, you know you come to accept that our own subjectivity in a way forms the unsurpassable horizon for you know everything we can think, talk, and write about as philosophers and as human beings. Um, and you know again, this would be subjectivism as a kind of uh, you know anti-realism, uh, and uh, you know as, as often you know inviting. For instance, if we think that our subjectivity is socially uh, uh, mediated or or constituted, um, you know this you know leads into things like uh, you know kind of social constructivist perspective, um, and. You know, one thing that both Zizek and I are very interested in is the idea that no, for Hegel, um, one of the things that he he pushes back against in his uh, you know debates with and criticisms of Kant and Fichte is the idea that well, we can get back behind human subjectivity. That starting from our own subjectivity, we can through thinking reverse engineer out of our own position a. Uh, 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 you know, a a defensible philosophical narrative about, for instance, the pre-subjective conditions for the emergence of subjectivity itself, that we can tell a defensible philosophical story about the genesis or emergence of subjectivity from the pre- or non-subjective. And, you know, that sort of uh, project, for instance, a, a kind of ontology that, you know, would start with You know, in terms of, you know, the idea of what would be metaphysically or ontologically most foundational or zero level, you know, would start with a picture of, you know, pre non subjective reality, however, it's conceived, and then be able to account for how that sort of pre or non subjective reality could generate out of itself. The thinking subject that then, after the fact of its emergence, eventually, for instance, you know, if it achieves a kind of philosophical standpoint, can retroactively, uh, uh, you know, can cast its glance backwards and, with the benefit of a certain kind of hindsight, can you know explain its own origins, can can account for its own genesis or emergence. Um, That that sort of ambition, I think, is clearly there in Hegel. Um, And is something that both Zizek and I, you know, seek to, you know, run with, update, extend, uh, you know, bring into, you know, into dialogue with, you know, Marxist historical and dialectical materialism, psychoanalytic metapsychology, in Zizek's case, quantum physics, in my case, neurobiology, and can really flesh out that sort of Hegelian project um, in in much greater detail than Hegel, given his inevitable limitations, is confined to his own era, uh, wasn't able to do. Um, whereas for someone like Pippin, he just wants to deny that that's even a va- a viable philosophical endeavor. Um, you know, to deny that it's Hegelian and, and deny that we could carry out such a such a project.
0: Yeah. So kind of following along. With that project, um, the term dialectical materialism appears in the subtitles of both Less Than Nothing and Absolute Recoil. Um, You quote Zizek, I think it's from Less Than Nothing. Um, He defines the term, uh, quote, The true foundation of dialectical materialism is not the necessity of contingency, but the contingency of necessity. In other words, while the second position opts for a secret, invisible necessity beneath the surface of contingency the first position asserts contingency as the abyssal ground of necessity itself. Um, you kind of bring this into dialogue then with a kind of a very brief history of what dialectical materialism has been. But what exactly is Zizek's kind of reanimated dialectical materialism? What is he trying to recover from uh, this kind of long history of Hegelian and then Marxist thinking?
1: Yeah, well, it's funny because he sometimes, um, in in recent interviews, he has taken to occasionally uh, saying, and here it's hard to judge how seriously or not he wishes to be taken when he says this sort of thing, um, but to claim that, well, look, really, traditional dialectical materialism was, you know, a, a, a ridiculous, untenable, intellectually bankrupt position, um, and it's part of my kind of. Uh, uh, you know marx contemporary you know marx inspired political provocations to lay claim to this mantle to redeploy it um and uh, you know when he you know when he says that you know i you know i think okay you know this is not really doing full justice to even traditional dialectical materialism starting with with marx and engels themselves you know and so you know in some of my work i've i've sought to actually go back to you know, the history of the Marxist tradition and to, you know, in particular, the development of a dialectical materialism, which, you know, whereas Marx, of course, doesn't forge it himself. I mean, he, you know, Marx develops a framework that comes to be called historical materialism, which is centered on, you know, as per what Marx really devoted most of his, you know, mature working life to, you know, is centered on a, a critique of political economy and specifically um, an analysis of of capitalism and how it emerged uh, out of prior history, um, and you know, Marx then in terms of his materialism, it's a materialism that focuses on human beings and their social existences, um, but of course, Engels already in collaboration with Marx, uh, you know, seeks to look at well how Marx's theoretical framework of historical materialism, which Marx brings to bear on human beings and their societies, um, how that could be broadened out into a more all-encompassing materialist worldview that could also uh, deal with pre- and non-human nature over and above human beings and their social realities. Um, And, you know, there's a very complicated history To the development of dialectical materialism, starting with this Engelsian ambition um, and continuing up through the present. Um, And it's an issue which, for instance, has been a big bone of contention between, um, you know, if you go back to the early 20th century, um, the very split between. Western Marxism and then you know Eastern Soviet varieties, and you know goes back to Georg Lukács' 1923 uh, magnum opus *History and Class Consciousness*, in which there are uh, there are swipes at Engels and and you know there are claims that um, you know historical materialism actually you know, should already indicate that. Engels's attempt to broaden it into dialectical materialism is misguided because we can never deal with nature itself; only nature as it features within human societies and with their ideologies, et cetera. And so, Engels regresses to this, you know, naive, uh, you know, you know, pre-Marxian, even pre-German idealist realism. Um, and this, you know, there is no, there's no prospect of us having a materialism talking about nature apart from society, just give that up. And the Soviets in 1924, uh, you know, condemn Lukács, uh, for an idealist deviation here. They starting with, with, you know, Plekhanov, Lenin, etc., they were already very committed to pushing forward with the development of a Marx, a Marxian materialism uh, in, as interfaced with, uh, especially the natural sciences, and you know, this was central to developments of Soviet Marxism, and also to you know Mao's version of, of Marxist materialism. But you know, Western European Marxists generally took the Lukacian, the early Lukácsian route that Lukac later recanted, um, but the Lukácsian route of of just rejecting that as as a dead end, as, as intellectual bankruptcy. Um, and so there's all of this in the background. And, you know, I deal with this. I had a book come out um, in September of 2019, the second volume of this three volume project entitled Prolegamna to any future Materialism, and the whole second section of that book, you know, deals with this complicated history uh, in, in terms of the development of, of dialectical over and above historical materialism. But Zizek, what one of the things that he's interested in doing, you know, in the in the formulation you quoted and, and similar ones, is that he sometimes essentially makes the move of reducing dialectical materialism or what he calls dialectical materialism distilling it in, uh, into basically a doctrine about modal categories. you know. So when we talk about contingency and necessity, contingency and necessity are both modal categories. They're forms of modality. And it's clear that Zizek wants to, when he's not just being tongue-in-cheek and saying, oh, I'm just using the phrase dialectical materialism to provoke people who want to see me as a crazed Stalinist or what have you. Um, He, when he's using it more seriously, you know, nowadays it's it's very clear that he wants to say, yes, what it ultimately boils down to is this um, prioritization of contingency over necessity, that reality at its most fundamental basic level is is, uh, a realm of of the contingent rather than of the necessitated. Um, Now this is related to an interesting development in his recent work. So, um, his most recent major philosophical texts that appeared last year as well, in 2019, um, Sex and the Failed Absolute. Um, one of the things that I was struck by in it was that, you know, Zizek has become even more adamant about the centrality of, of quantum physics for his ontology. And, you know, in that book, in Sex and the Failed Absolute, you know, he, at certain moments, go so far as to say basically that you know, my dialectical materialist ontology is, in a way, just a certain version of of quantum physics or what quantum physics tells us. Um, and here, I think you can see the connection between d- uh, boiling down dialectical materialism to a doctrine of modal categories, and in particular, to asserting the primacy of contingency over necessity, with the appeal to quantum physics, because, you know, Gijek's rendition of quantum physics in these contexts, it's to say, well, you have this, at the most fundamental level, this indeterminacy. You have, uh, you know, this this kind of flux in which, you know, things are open, in which there is no, you know, one and only, uh, you know, necessitation ruling in terms of entities and events. Um, and then with like the collapse of the wave function, um, you have, you know, that sort of contingent openness, then, um, you know get, uh, 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 you know, turned into something which then appears to be, you know, for instance, you know, the macro-level physical world that, you know, was central to Newtonian physics, um, you know, in which it seems as though you have the, the, the rule of causal necessitation, which necessity holds sway, you know, in the guise of, for instance, the Newtonian mechanical physics, uh, you know, matter in, in motion governed by efficient causal laws. Um, and so, you know, for Zizek, you know, you have as ontologically primary um, the weird quantum world that he associates with contingency, and then at the level of a secondary derivative necessity, um, you have you know through the p- passages like the collapse of the wave function, you have you know uh, come into the picture um, a reality which looks more like you know necessity has priority over contingency. But for Zizek, that's kind of a secondary reversal of a more primordial condition, and again with this idea. of of um, you know moving from you know quantum to classical states at the level of physics you know you can see how for him there's a connection between the, the modal categories of contingency and necessity and what he's interested in getting out of quantum physics as he reads it now for me I should say. Apropos what dialectical materialism was, I mean, one, I don't think that Zizek is is interpretively fair to it. I think that there is a certain amount of exegetical injustice in some of his dismissals of it. Um, but what I, I and I think, moreover, um, it was not itself, historically speaking, um, if we're just being careful about the history of ideas, it was, you know, certainly not wedded to this project of making the pair of contingency and necessity you know, the essence of, of, of a materialism qualified as dialectical, that what it was, I mean, I think really the lowest common denominator of the different permutations of dialectical materialism developed by everybody from Engels through, you know, a certain Althusser, et cetera, um, is that it is more in line with, and here it's strange to me, Zizek doesn't draw on this more, you know, it's more in line with this Hegel inspired project that Zizek also is committed to of you know, being able to offer an account of the emergence of subjectivity out of material reality, like how we get, you know, the genesis of a number of things that, you know, going up to and including ourselves as minded and like-minded subjects, how to account for that starting with, you know, the flat monistic reality of the physical universe alone prior to the rise of life. Uh, you know, sentience, sapience, uh, uh, etc. cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, the pursuit of a kind of a non-reductive, um, you know, somewhat naturalistic materialism that would, you know, also allow us to, for instance, account for the compatibility between our freedom and the necessity of the whole sway in reality. This, this uh, you know, sort of project was really what I think traditionally dialectical materialism was was after. Um, And so, you know, to me, there's a lot in there that, in fact, is very close to what Zizek himself is pursuing, despite the fact that he's now come to, you know, be a little, uh, uh, it seems cautious or hesitant about fully embracing the label, even though he uses it a lot, Um, and then also having this very austere Uh, you know, kind of surprisingly reduced version of it in which it's just a matter of asserting the contingency of necessity rather than, uh, you know, any other combination of of modal categories.
0: Yeah, he definitely can be a bit hasty in places. Um, Kind of moving on off some of these themes, a lot of the debate here revolves around Hegel's understanding of actuality, um, partly because he's got this famous kind of quip about the rational being actual in the actual being rational which would seem to imply a certain conservative politics of like it is what it is um and obviously that doesn't fit well with marx or zizek who are much more progressive um you write uh, quote for hegel much of what happens to be the case in his given status quo is merely there or exists but is not fully real qua actual so this is a very different understanding of actuality. Um, Can you kind of unpack Hegel's understanding of actuality in it, how it resides for you and Zizek on the side of revolution rather than reaction, as you put it?
1: Yes. Now, of course, actuality is for Hegel also a modal category and that uh, Hegel has a well-worked out doctrine of modal categories, um, in his mature logic, um, and you know the, the logic is divided into the doctrines of being, essence, and concept. Go so into these three books, um, and it and it's the very last stretch of the second book, the doctrine of essence. You know, in which Hegel delineates the, uh, you know, the basically. what is metaphysically foundational, what is most basic to the categories that are modal categories for us at that point. Um, And he signals, and this is part of why, uh, you know, we we are given warnings by Hegel himself that his, uh, uh, you know, infamous notorious proclamation about the relationship between the rational and the actual um, uh, is not saying what is typically taken to saying, which is, you know, this, this is by, especially by, uh, you know, Hegel's critics you know, this This has, you know, consistently been uh, construed as saying that essentially, you know, Hegel is there in this privileged academic position with his chair at the University of Berlin. And at the time, you know, you have the, this very, you know, reactionary Prussian government that was seeking to turn the clock of history back to before 1789, you know, and, and the aftermath of the French Revolution, you know, that was part of the Germanic reaction against, French influence, you know, as involved in the Napoleonic Wars, that, um, you know, this was taken as Hegel pronouncing a philosophical benediction over the Prussian authorities, that, you know, that they're You know, their reign and, uh, you know, all of of the measures that they were taken was to be accepted not only as, well, this is what we have to put up with, but rather this, this represents the height of historical development, the most rational social order. And Hegel gives us various warnings that he should not be taken in that way. You know, one of them has to do with him saying, "Look, when I say, you know, what when I talk about what is actual, I'm not using this word casually. It has a very precise sense that, you know, you can look up if you, you know, if you turn to my logic. Um, but here, I think it's easier to focus on the historical and political dimensions to to, you know, to answer your question most readily. And so, Hegel." You know, of course, in uh, you know, in his earlier years. I mean, in fact, Hegel's very first publication was an uh, an anonymous translation with a very uh, substantial translator's preface of a text uh, by a uh, dissident lawyer who was in exile in Paris, writing about the oppressive conditions. Uh, in his native Switzerland, um, that the landed aristocracy were responsible for. And Hegel was a house tutor for some of these people and hated them. And so I think part of his revenge against his employers was to translate and publish this, this text, denouncing them, um, as, you know, these, you know, horrible, you know, repressive exploiters of the people. Um, but, you know, Hegel's very first publication is, is a, is a kind of progressive, one might even say radical political, uh, uh text. And throughout much of of his, you know, pre eighteen twenty one, because this line about the rational and the actual occurs in the eighteen twenty one elements of the philosophy of right. Prior to his Berlin period, you know, it's very clear that among other things, Hegel is is uh, with certain reservations, but nonetheless, overall, very much an enthusiast for the French Revolution, um, you know, very in favor of the sort of, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity progress that that revolution represented and promised to spread to other parts of the world, including, you know, the next door German speaking world, um, that you have, you know, a very, really a very progressive Hegel. I mean, in fact, he, you know, every year on Bastille Day, he would, in mixed company, publicly toast the storming of the Bastille. Even, you know, in a Berlin where you had this, you know, reactionary, repressive atmosphere, where that was a risky gesture and could have gotten him in trouble. And so you have these factors. And then, how do you square that with the idea that, you know, he is, um, you know, pronouncing a, a kind of philosophical benediction over the, the Prussian authorities? Well, one way to get at this is to say, look, following Hegel's clues that he gives us. Look, um, for him, historical actuality, and there's lots of evidence in his political writings throughout his career. You know, Hegel thinks that, well, historical actuality is, is what even in the philosophy of right, he calls the kind of inner pulse or sort of, you know, the, the core sort of lifeblood of, you know, of history as it is unfolding. So, you know, in a given present, in a particular, you know, current uh, sociopolitical context, that there will be some aspects of that context that are very much expressive of a powerful general thrust in a certain socio-historical direction. But it's never the case that that the dominant thrust is so dominant that everything that's part of your context is an expression of it, that there will be a whole scattered series of other elements of any given situation um, that will be part of your social contextual present but that are perhaps for instance vestiges of an earlier form of social life that's already dying out you know or that will be mere kind of anomalies or or outliers Um, you know for hegel like if we took all of the you know elements of you know our social circumstances um and then if we looked at the history of our society and we put you know plotted all of its elements we would see that you know they can be scattered uh, all over the place, but then there'll be some that cluster around, you know, a definite line of, of directed movement, um, that there will be some sort of thrust that is tending in a certain direction. And Hegel, it's clear, even when he says the actual is rational, the rational is actual, that, you know, Hegel is, you know, in his view, actuality here, the central thrust of social history is on the side of things like the French revolution, And yes, the Prussian reaction to that exists, it's there, but it is fighting a losing battle. It is at best just delaying the inevitable. Um, You know, it is, you know, Hegel talks about mere existence or being there, Dasein. Um, And he says, you know, he he provides all of this evidence that for him, um, this kind of conservative backlash in places like Prussia against the, you know, gain and the progressive march of human freedom represented by the french revolution um that he thinks you know the the things like prussian reaction are doomed eventually to be swept away yes they exist they're here they're around us but time is not on their side the wind of history is blowing against them and they will eventually be swept aside um and that i think is really his his picture, right um and you know it's also this Make sense of the fact that in the same period, when he's teaching the philosophy of right in Berlin, he also is teaching what were then as very popular courses on the philosophy of world history, and, and toward the end of that, you know, Hegel in his lectures on world history, when talking about the French Revolution, that is perhaps the most like lyrical, rhapsodic, you know, just intoxicated, enthusiastic language that he uses to talk about the French Revolution as this glorious new mental dawn in which all rational minds rejoice, etc. cetera. Um, and, you know, it's clear they thought that was going to overpower, um, you know, these resistances to it that, you know, we're seeing, for instance, in those parts of the former Holy Roman Empire that were fighting to, again, turn back the clock to before 1789.
0: Yeah, so... Before getting back to Zizek, you kind of continue this extensive exploration of actuality, um, especially in his book, The Science of Logic. Um, He offers three sub-variations of actuality, um, contingency, relative necessity, and absolute necessity. Can you kind of unpack these kind of sub-variations?
1: Well, you know what I, I when I you know was was thinking about this this line of questioning, you know what I feel would perhaps be most important is more than anything else is to for me to pan back to um, a bigger picture level. Um, you know, of course, mm-hmm. you know as you know in 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 the New German Idealism in the book itself, you know I, I walk readers through all the nitty gritty you know, textual details in
0: this part of... We, we can return immediately to Zizek if you would prefer that. Oh, oh, oh. no, I,
1: I actually want... I think that there's something very important in this line of questioning that I want to make sure to speak to. Um, sure. And it takes us back to where we started, really, in terms of, you know, struggles over, you know, Hegel's legacy, you know, interpretive fights over what, you know, the proper name Hegel even stands for. Um, and one of the uh, typical pictures, really caricatures of Hegel that is commonplace. And that, again, someone like Charles Taylor, you know, has recourse to, but, you know, that has long been part of the less sympathetic reception of him is that, you know, Hegel is often taken to be in a way something along the lines of a kind of post-Kantian Leibniz. Um, And by this, I mean, you know, a thinker who, you know, who proposes that, at the most fundamental of metaphysical levels, there is a kind of underlying metaphysical reality that governs, you know, everything that, you know, we count as existing and as part of, you know, the world that we live in, including ourselves. And that, you know, that this, this underlying metaphysical reality that, that runs the show that, you know, we are really just, you know, the, 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 the play of, um, it is something along the lines of an all powerful God that dictates a certain necessary course to the, you know, to how reality shows up and how it unfolds, you know, in this, you know, in Leibniz, you know, you have this. Uh, you know, this teleolo- this strong teleological theodicy. Um, you know, you have this idea of, you know, this world is exactly as it is and cannot be otherwise, you know, based on God's perfection and having created the optimally good, best of all possible worlds. And that the course of events, even when these events seem to involve things going horribly awry, ultimately are part of this, you know, pre-arranged, orchestrated in advance Uh, uh, you know, you know, dictated as a matter of necessity ahead of time, um, you know, metaphysical framework that, uh, you know, guarantees that, you know, this indeed is the, you know, the Leibniz who was justifiably lampooned as Dr. Pangloss in, you know, Voltaire's Candide, this indeed is the best of all possible worlds. And so, you know, the idea of the primacy of necessity, the notion that in terms of modal categories, the most fundamental level of reality that we can, you know, delineate as grounding everything that is that you know that we can make as metaphysically or ontologically foundational um, is is a matter of necessity of ironclad determination um, of whatever sort and in, ter- in in revisiting hegel's doctrine of modal categories in the logic what i am interested in showing at that point in the book is the idea that hegel is at all committed to any sort of valorization of necessity as the ur category at least in terms of modal categories you know that hegel is some sort of necessitarian determinist etc as he's often misperceived as being that if you read his account of modal categories in the logic with the care that that text demands you find that in fact not only is that inaccurate it's a 180 degree inversion of the truth. It gets things completely backwards. Now for Hegel, and here's where I think Zizek is right with formulations like the contingency of necessity, right? That the ontological zero level is a kind of openness, uh, a contingency in the sense of a lack of any kind of necessitation or pre-orchestration and out of that initial chaos, you gradually have, in a bottom-up fashion, the emergence of more constrained forms of order and organization. And so, yes, you eventually have things that exhibit a certain kind of necessity based on order and organization. But that is a secondary, derivative byproduct that it you know arises out of an initial non necessitarian contingent openness. Um, and so, you know, for both Žižek and I, you know, Hegel properly read. Is the opposite of what he's often accused as being, which is a kind of post-Kantian Leibniz qua, you know, someone with a, a kind of theodicy, someone who thinks teolo- teleological necessity is the ultimate explanation for, you know, why things happen the way they happen, how things turn out, et cetera, and just to demolish that that you know falsifying caricature of Hegel it was, I think, something that, you know, is indeed, you know, quite important. And, you know, that, you know, really, that's what I'm after in that section of the book that deals with Hegel's doctrine of modal categories.
0: Yeah, kind of returning to Zizek's project with kind of reanimating Hegel, you kind of unpack his account of teleology, um, which is another place where he's been kind of, in your view, kind of misconstrued as having this very strict, like, cause effect story that happens. Um, you write, um, or you quote Zizek writing, uh, if due to contingency, a story emerges at the end, then this story will appear as necessary. Yes, the story is necessary, but it's necessity itself is contingent. Um, can you kind of unpack what's, what Zizek's doing here and what you're kind of picking up?
1: Yeah. And just, I, I can begin with, you know, uh, unpacking that, exact formulation of Zizek's that you just quoted, you know, and then there's a few other things that I think you know ought to be added. Um, you know, so, you know, for, for, uh, you know, Hegel as Zizek reads him, right. If I take you know, the position that I occupy in my status quo and the, you know, the, the vantage point or context, you know, in which I'm situated. Um, and I cast my glance backward and for Hegel, right. Uh, you know, he, famously uses that image of the Owl of Minerva in the preface to the philosophy of right. And the point of it is that, well, we are all philosophers included, um, not unable to see into the future. And so when we view ourselves, we can situate ourselves in uh, in our present in relation to our past, but that's it. We only have this benefit of hindsight. We have no power of foresight. Um, And, you know, for, for Hegel, right, that when I... Operate as the owl of Minerva when you know I take flight at dusk and I survey you know uh, the you know as it were the remains of the day um, you know when I when I survey what came before you know look at the past um, that for my present and hence my perspective or position to be what it is that the past had to have unfolded in the way that it did right that I would not be the I that I am at the present looking back at this past if that past hadn't been precisely the past that it was, right? So there's the idea that at least for my retroactive gaze, that that past is necessary, right? But it's necessary only in retrospect after the fact. In other words, as history leading up to my present was unfolding, there was not some sort of preordained necessity already at work in that sequence of events that, determined ahead of time, in advance, that they would turn out that way. There was openness, there was contingency, there was, uh, you know, not, ne- you know, constrained by necessity set of possibilities. But once, you know, I'm situated at a particular point in the present, occupying a, a, a determinate position, inhabiting a particular, in this case, especially social historical context, in order for that present to be the present that it is, the past had to have unfolded as it did, although at, at the time of its unfolding, nothing made that unfolding in that way absolutely necessary. Right? That's you know the the, the gist of the argument that Zizek is making in, in formulations like the one you quoted. Um, you know, there's you know there's there's certainly that, and of course, when we even talk about Hegel's view of more concretely human social history or what he would call sometimes world history. Um, that, you know, Hegel, it's very interesting. There's this lengthy, uh, you know, in terms of his lengthy introduction to his his popular lectures on the philosophy of world history. At the end of that introduction is a separate section um, entitled The Geographical Basis of World History. You know, and there, you know, Hegel says, look, different human groups scattered in, in different places around the earth started off on unequal footing, and they happen to just find themselves, you know, by the accidents of their emergence, you know, tossed into climates, environments, geographies, etc., that, you know, for the different groups, presented very different sets of opportunities and obstacles, and that, you know, some groups had certain resources, others not, etc. And then Hegel says, look, I mean, this that's just a contingent crapshoot. That's a roll of the dice. And that starting from that initially very contingent givenness of differences in geographical settings that different human societies get up and running that then come to have very different, you know, uh, histories and then interact with each other in fateful ways. And, you know, for Hegel, even though you could say once human social history gets up and running on this basis, there comes to be some, you know, you might say, laws, loosely speaking, some sort of general structuring tendencies to how those histories, you know, unfold once they're up and running, that those, you know, laws of history are themselves, even if they seem to have a power of of, of necessity, are ultimately contingent because they are the secondary emergent byproducts uh, that are generated by this initial, again, random crapshoot of geography. Um, and so, you know, these sorts of things are very important to bear in mind in terms of approaching Hegel. Um, and, you know, I, another way I can flesh out, you know, this sort of argument about Hegel that, you know, you get with Zizek and that, you know, I'm also invested in. Like with Hegel's phenomenology of spirit, right? You know, it's it's sometimes, you know, with justification characterized as a kind of philosophical, a philosophical uh, Bildungsroman. You know, this is a sort of educational odyssey of what Hegel calls consciousness up to, at the end, absolute knowing. Um, And many readers of this text think that, all right, this, you know, with Hegel as a kind of, um, you know, teleological necessitarian thinker, that there's this, there's some sort of metaphysically preordained itinerary that consciousness is, is fated to run through um, and that, you know, it makes sure that consciousness inevitably achieves the standpoint Hegel calls absolute knowing. And that all of this was already, you know, as it were, written in the stars, already decided in advance by perhaps some sort of cosmic godlike megamind. Um, and that I don't think is the case. I mean, for Hegel, in the phenomenology, with each figure shape of consciousness that creates problems for itself, that gets itself entangled in dialectics, in Hegel's sense, of wrestling with self-generated contradictions. Um, nothing for Hegel guarantees in advance that progress will be made beyond the deadlocks and impasses that a given figure shape of consciousness drives itself into. But for Hegel, of course, he's writing in the early 19th century, you know, that the owl the, the of Minerva is already implicitly part of Hegel's perspective here. For Hegel, it, it, happened, it just so happens that after... Um, you know, after uh, uh, a certain number of permutations of these different figures or shapes of consciousness have historically unfolded, we can see how they can be put in relation to each uh, each other where one of them is, in a sense, the successor of another because it resolves the the problems that were particular to that other shape. But, you know, it's only because history happens to have, you know, gotten to this point where there have been certain figures or shapes that have come on the scene that have dealt with problems that other shapes created for themselves. Um, You know, that allows Hegel to tell this story with the benefit of hindsight, but just because there's a certain retroactive necessity in the sense of for there to have been progress, it had to have been the case that certain problems were resolved in certain ways. That doesn't commit one to saying that it was already from the get go you know, necessary, fated, guaranteed that when particular human perspectives ran into self-generated problems, that something would come along that would resolve those difficulties. It just so happens that after the fact, we know that that happened, but it wasn't guaranteed beforehand.
0: Yeah. So kind of following up this question of kind of teleology, you end this chapter reflecting on the plight of like progressive political movements today. And Zizek is kind of Famous for his continued commitment to, like, kind of a Marxist communist um, push, you know, and that means kind of different things at different times for him, but generally still committed to this sort of large scale transformation. Um, So, how does Zizek's reinflated um, kind of non teleological Hegel help us make sense of this long string of kind of political defeats and backlashes, as well as thinking about? You know potential transformation, and maybe just answer the first. We'll kind of get to the transformation and overcoming later. But-
1: yes, yes. Well, you know, here um, I- implicitly in the background of what Zizek is doing here is, um, you know, our set of developments which trace back to um, Western Marxism in the first half of, of the twentieth century, um, and you know, here in particular. I think that, uh, you know, the best point of reference um, that really gets at this in, in the most direct and, I think, sophisticated fashion um, it would be, uh, you know, Walter Benjamin's uh, famous essay, uh, Theses on the Philosophy of History, from the end of the 1930s. Um, and um, in, in that text, you know, Benjamin, among other things, uh, you know, talks about uh, you know what he he uh, you know calls uh, a weak messianic power, um, and what he is doing is is that he is recasting Marxism in a way that takes into account the and particularly discouraging experiences of you know the stretch of history from Marx's death in 1883 you know up through the rise of fascism in Europe uh, and the outbreak of of the Second World War, and. You know, Benjamin, um, and along with Benjamin, certain other Marxists, Western Marxists of this period are also making moves along these lines. Um, You know, they come to acknowledge that, well, for any intellectually honest observer of the first half of the 20th century in particular, um, it just seems utterly implausible, indefensible to hold on to a more traditional Enlightenment-style Marxism that, you know, we could say, you know, Benjamin doesn't use this phrase, but the uh, unstated complement to, or polar opposite of weak messianism would be strong messianism. Um, And, you know, one could say that, you know, insofar as Marx and Engels were, in certain respects, children of the Enlightenment, um, and then certainly uh, of some of their interpreters, like in the, you know, the turn of of the last century, the, you know, uh, know, German-speaking Marxist theoreticians with, of the Second International, but also on the other, on another end of that political spectrum, Stalin, that there were a number of Marxists in the 19th and early 20th centuries, um, you know, who held to the idea of a kind of historical necessitation and who thought, all right, Whereas Hegel claims we have no power of foresight into the future, no Marx's breakthrough in terms of historical materialism allows us to in looking at the past and the present, to also be able to predict at least the rough outlines of what lies ahead in the future um and that if you know uh, this version of of Marxism you know claims that look. The eventual, you know, self-destruction of capitalism, and out of those ashes, the rise of the phoenix of socialism, and the eventual arrival of full-fledged communism—that we can know that this is guaranteed to happen. That sooner or later, it is historically inevitable. Down the road into the future, that this will all come to pass. Um, and you know, of course, for observers of the of the first half of the 20th century, like Benjamin, there's the the registration of well. No, I mean, Marx's, you know, or even if you don't attribute them to Marx, that this kind of classical Enlightenment style Marxist historical materialism was predicting that, all right, you would have the outbreak relatively soon of proletarian revolutions in the most advanced. Capitalist industrial countries—that didn't happen. Instead, the revolutions happened in, you know, what we would now call the developing world. Uh, you know, in agrarian czarist Russia. You know, then in peasant China, et cetera. Um, and that, moreover, not only did uh, uh, you know socialist or communist revolutions fail to erupt uh, in Western Europe. Instead, you got the opposite. You had, you know, the the triumphant rise of fascism. Uh, you know, in, in Europe. And, you know, so you had a situation of two world wars with a great depression sandwiched in between and, you know, and all of that. I mean, and of course the great depression that seemed to fit the bill of, you know, for a mark, a classical Marxist, the mother of all economic crises. And yet the arrival of that economic crisis did not, you know, did not result in social revolutions in capitalist countries hit hard by it. You know, in the United States, you had 25% uh, a 25% unemployment rate, you know, people in soup kitchen lines, etc. But still, you didn't have a proletarian revolution. Um, and all of these things, you know, forced certain Marxists like Benjamin to go back to the drawing board. And but Benjamin, in particular, is interesting here, because I think like what both Zizek and I in different ways want to do as well. You know, he, on the, he, on the one hand, he Implicitly returns to Hegel's owl of Minerva and essentially says, "Yeah, we don't have any foresight into the future." That you know, Benjamin uses the image of uh, a, a Paul Clay painting of the angel of history and you know describes us as like the angel of history. We are in a situation where the winds of history are pushing us in a certain direction, and our wings are you know caught open by this powerful thrust of the winds of history, and we're being pushed forward. But with our backs turned to the direction in which we're being pushed, so we can't see where we're being, uh, 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 you know, thrust by by the overall you know tendencies of history. So we have no predictive power; the future is unforeseeable for us. But Benjamin you know, strikes this nice balance where, you know, on the one hand, he wants to take into account just how badly things have turned out, and in a way, contrary to classical Marxism's predictions. I mean, heck, he's a you know, a German-speaking Jewish Marxist intellectual uh, on the verge of being, you know, uh, captured by the Gestapo. I mean, things really couldn't look much darker. I mean, he's just witnessed, you know, Stalin betray, you know, uh, true Marxism by entering into a non-aggression pact with Hitler, you know, in in terms of the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact. You know, Benjamin wants to, on the one hand, rework Marxist materialism to take into account, just how dark things have ended up turning out, contrary to the bright, you know, optimistic predictions of the more classical Enlightenment progress narrative version of Marxism. But without just sinking into fatalistic despair and saying we're guaranteed, you know, to, to be screwed, um, that, you know, there's for Benjamin, there's always grounds for hope in terms of the unpredictability and unforeseeability of the future. But we shouldn't be overconfident, you know, complacently optimistic that the invisible hand of history is guaranteed to guide us to some sort of post-capitalist paradise. Um, So, you know, it's it's a matter of, I think, acknowledging that the most we can do is try to occupy this position where there's a degree of uncertainty and unpredictability, and there's grounds for hope. But at the same time, you know, we live in also very dark times. I think Um, we can't, you know, not acknowledge. that there are reasons for being rather pessimistic or for, you know, you know, thinking that, yeah, perhaps if we had to place, you know, place bets on odds that things probably aren't going to turn out all that well, but it's not, nothing is guaranteed.
0: Right. So you kind of alluded this in your last, to this in your last answer, but kind of Zizek has this sort of, uh, there was this kind of, uh, appropriation of Marxist Leninist kind of theories of history in the kind of Stalinist or Soviet paradigms. Um, and you kind of talk about how he, along with Alain Badu, endorsed this dialectical materialism, as opposed to kind of a democratic materialism. So there's kind of a question there of like, what what is he trying to push back against with his own form of materialism? And this kind of is a interesting place where like theory and politics are kind of intersecting in some complicated ways because he's trying to kind of pick up a legacy that has definitely been tarnished by certain historical horrors. Like what's he trying to get at here?
1: Well, here, I mean, in particular, um, you know, with the reference to Badiou. So um, in the Preface to uh, his 2006 book Logics of Worlds, um, Badiou uh, now rather famously uh, deploys a distinction between what he, Badiou, calls, on the one hand, the materialist dialectic, and on the other hand, quote-unquote, democratic materialism. Um, And... You know this this B- distinction between the materialist dialectic and democratic materialism, you know something that Zizek has very much embraced and you know over the course of the past decade plus has repeatedly deployed in his own ways. Um, and you know the, the the central gist of this of this distinction is Badu draws it when he first introduces it in, the, in, in this at the start of the second book of his Being an Event uh, project. Badiou, you know, dis- characterizes democratic materialism as very much the a kind of, you might say, the spontaneous ideological outlook or, or worldview of, you know, your average expectable denizen of a contemporary Western-style capitalist society. Um, and, you know, the notion there is that, well, you have a sort of spontaneous ontology in which the only things that are acknowledged as existing are... You know, on the one hand, uh, uh, you know, various sorts of, you know, Batu says, for democratic materialism, his axiom is, you know, there are only bodies and languages. And, you know, what he means by bodies there, it would be, well, you know, there are, for instance, you know, not different types of living beings. You know, there are individual human beings with their bodies, and these bodies are, you know, marked by things like, you know, race, you know, sex, gender, et cetera. Um, so you have, you know, all of these bodies which, you know, bear these markers that are taken up by non-Marxist you know, forms of identity politics on both the right and left. Um, and then, you know, say there's that and then there's languages. And by languages there, by two means really different social universes, right, with the idea that, you know, human language is kind of the you know, the, some of the core scaffolding for, you know, everything we associate with, you know, what we count as our social, cultural, et cetera, existences. Um, and, you know, that we have an ontology in which you've got these different bodies that can be, you know, taken as bearing these markers of identity. And then you've got these different socio-cultural milieus that we all inhabit. Um, and that this is it. And that in particular for Badiou, This perspective denies that there are any kind of universals, you know, that there is anything, you know, timelessly trans-individually valuable. Um, It's a kind of, uh, you might say it's a kind of relativism. Um, You know, where there are just competing partial perspectives, there are incommensurable, there are different bodies, there are incommensurable languages, uh, you know, social perspectives, cultural outlooks, etc. And that's it, we just have this marketplace of diversities and differences, um, and no, and the denial, um, whether implicit or explicit, the denial that there's any kind of stronger sense of, of, you know, to use Plato's, you know, triad of terms and get in bed to use embrace of Plato is not inappropriate, that there's there are no universal, eternal uh, uh, truths, beauties, or goodnesses, you know, that we can, you know, put into play And any attempt on our part to, you know, to be faithful to the idea of, you know, truth, beauty, and goodness in a strong, you know, universalist sense can only result in in totalitarian catastrophe. This inevitably bottoms out in, in you know, the gulag or the concentration camp. And, you know, Badiou and Zizek both are opposed to the idea that that should be accepted, as you know, sort of the ultimate horizon of, of you know, our thinking both philosophically and politically. And so the alternative to this sort of democratic materialism, as I've just sketched it, according to Badieu, the alternative is what you know, Badieu calls as materialist dialectic. And here it's something, you know, even though Badieu does not, for instance, draw from Hegel and, and that context of German idealism in the way that Zizek or myself does. You know, for Badiou, there's something similar in terms of what he calls the the materialist dialectic opposition to democratic materialism. And for Badiou, that's the idea that, you know, although that, you know, you have all of these different bodies and languages, although you have this reality that seems to involve, you know, just this play of differences, that nonetheless, um, there are occasional moments, at least... When this reality can generate out of itself something which can come to transcend those you know local, contextual, specific, you know individual uh, 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 particular bodies and languages, and can indeed come to function as a you know as a universal. Um so you know Badieu's notion that you know the realm of of bodies and languages can produce out of itself, a universality, or, or various universalities, um, you know, such as you know, for Badiou, things like uh, you know, the kinds of ideals of of justice that would be involved in a communist politics. Um, that you know, just as for instance, you could say, look, mathematics, the various building blocks of mathematics, were discovered in particular times and places, right? That for instance, you have the ancient Greeks, and in the ancient Greek context, you had the development of mathematics. But the idea that just because you know ancient Greece was a particular set of bodies and languages was you know a a just one socio historical locale among others, of course we probably most of us would reject the idea that well therefore because you know certain elements of mathematics were invented by those contexts those elements of mathematics remain valid only for someone, you know, uh, tied to the ancient Greek uh, uh, context. No. I mean, the that ancient Greece birthed out of itself in that instance, something which took on a, a transcontextual, timeless, universal validity. Um, and you know, Badu, Zhizek, and myself, I think all in our various ways are committed to the notion that indeed, out of particular socio-historical contexts, they can participate in or give rise to things which are not just a matter of, you know, this is one perspective, you know, versus another, and there is no ultimate, you know, there is no larger, you know, possibility of a kind of universality that would overcome incommensurable partial perspectives. Um, So that's, you know, a big part of what is going on in terms of this particular Badiou reference that Zizek, uh, you know, sometimes leans on.
0: Yeah, so kind of moving on, uh, we're like at the last chapter at this point. Um, you draw attention to kind of one of the core things that has kind of united much of Žižek's work is the synthesis of uh, idealism and psychoanalysis. You look in particular at his kind of synthesis of Kantian law in the Lacanian act. Can you kind of Unpack what Žižek's doing by kind of putting these two together. Yeah,
1: um, that for and to cut a very long story very short, you know, for Žižek and also this was developed very nicely by one of his colleagues, uh, Alenka Zupančič, in her 2000 book uh, *Ethics of the Real*. Um, for Žižek and Zupančič, as they read it, um, there's a connection between how Kant, in his uh, deontological ethics of pure practical reason, Kant's moral philosophy how Kant talks about the moral law and how Lacan talks about what Lacan calls an act. Um, now, of course, for, for Kant, um, when my rational will is indeed uh operating morally and is therefore adhering to what you know Kant's famous categorical imperative tells me is the moral law in any given instance, that this involves you know me willing and hence on the base of my will acting in a way that potentially, if not actually is at odds with what various and sundry, what Kant calls pathological inclinations, you know, my human all too human impulses and urges that, you know, when my rational will is operating out of pure respect for the moral law or as close as it can get to it. um, You know, it is, it is, you know, exercising a power to, Hold at bay to you know override or veto um, what you know certain you know impulses and urges that I have as as a human animal would perhaps otherwise you know uh, steer me towards doing, um, and so this capacity for me for one side of myself to as we might put it negate other sides of myself for my you know rational will. Adhering to the moral law through that law, negating the influence of these other parts of myself that Kant associates with my human, alter human nature, my pathological inclinations. Um, that you know, there's a link that the Slovene Lacanians like to draw between this, and then Lacan uh, in especially uh, the, uh, his seminars of the of the mid to late 1960s, and in particular, there's a, a, a yet still yet to be published in an official French edition uh, seminar of the 15th, um, which was uh, 1967 to 1968, in which in the opening sessions of it, Lacan develops a distinction between what he calls a mere action on the one hand versus an act on the other. Um, and that when I'm merely engaged in action for Lacan, you know that is where I am engaged in performing certain instances of conduct that are fully compatible with, and are just part of the normal run of things that just the flow of business as usual. And in performing an action, I don't at all uh, radically change or alter myself. Um, You know, I'm just continuing to be, you know, the sort of familiar character that I am in in my given reality. Um, But for Lacan sometimes, and without being able really for Lacan to consciously plan ahead of time for doing it, um, I will perform a, 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 you know, an uh, an action that is more than just an action in that it's something which once I have done it, it shatters the very coordinates of my reality and, you know, destroys my previous form of selfhood. That, you know, once I have, you know, as it were, passed to the act and I come on the other side of it, I don't come out of it the same, right? That, that it basically using Nietzschean language, it breaks my life history in two, into a before and an after. Um, and that I become, you know, I basically become a different sort of subject in the aftermath of a deed that rises to the level of what Lacan calls an act, as distinct from an action. Um, but, you know, again, the w- one of the common denominators with Kant here is, is the notion that um, there is a part of ourselves that has this power to in a way, um, negate what we typically are. And, you know, in terms of business as usual, functioning, the humdrum run of things, you know, our, our, you know, self, character, you know, personality, and even like, you know, the kind of life that we are living that manifests itself in terms of, you know, owning property, being in certain relationships, etc. that we do have this power, whether it's we consciously exercise it or whether it unconsciously comes into action. To radically alter, or even destroy this selfhood and everything tied up with it, um, and to you know enter into you know to pass through what Lacan called uh, you know subjective destitution, a kind of radical loss of selfhood and all of its trappings, um, and that you know this this power of negation. Is a peculiar feature, you know, of, of human beings. I mean, the most extreme but concrete example, uh, I think, for Lacan was inspired by Alexander Kozhev's famous uh, interpretation, given in seminar form, of Hegel's Phenomenology. You know, in you know, in, in unpacking certain moments in Hegel's Phenomenology, emphasizes, following Hegel, that one of the things that's distinctive about human beings that differentiates us from other animals. Uh, Is that we can commit suicide, right? That we can, I mean, the most radical negation of self would be the self destruction that is taking one's own life. And that, you know, whether we do this for a cause, like I decide that in the name of some sort of higher good, uh, you know, like freedom, et cetera, I'm willing to lay down my life voluntarily, you know, or whether just out of despair and not wanting to go on with things, I, I, do myself in, um, that, uh, you know, that there's, and here we're getting close to Freud's death drive, um, that this idea of a power of radical negativity, a capacity for, uh, self-cancellation, you know, for, uh, you know, making ourselves radically other than we have been or are, that this is something that you get in both German idealism and even though, psychoanalysis is often not thought of as involving this, that Zizek's reading of Freud and Lacan, you know, seeks to show that part of what, you know, Freud and Lacan are getting at with the, with the phrase death drive is this something very, you know, that very much involves this, this power to negate.
0: Yeah. This radical negativity is kind of at the core of his ontological project. Um, So kind of, uh, along these lines, um, we're kind of talking about freedom and negating kind of being on rails, so to speak. Um, you quote Zizek. Um, he writes, we are free because there is a lack in the other, because the substance out of which we grew and on which we rely is inconsistent, barred, failed, marked by impossibility. Um, and you then kind of jump off of this and kind of the discussion of drives and talk about Zizekian compatibilism, um, you know, versus like neurobiological determinism a la Dan Dennett. So kind of how does your account of like neuroscience kind of fit in or, or um, supplement Zizek's ontological project?
1: Yes. Well, you know, when Zizek, you know, says things like, well, you know, Reality has to involve certain, uh, you know, forms of inconsistency that, uh, you know, substance has to be internally conflicted, etc. In order for us to be the free subjects that we are, um, you know, th- you know, in a way, the underlying reasoning is that well, if we philosophically speaking start with the idea of autonomous subjectivity as as central, and then we seek to you know, reverse engineer out of that subjectivity that we ourselves, even as philosophers are, that we seek to, you know, inscribe this free subjectivity within a pre- or non-subjective, you know, substantial reality, um, and still have this subject be a subject and be a free subject. Um, That, you know, for Zizek, we could say that if it were the case that, you know, pre- or non-subjective reality were this you know, as it's often envisioned, uh, you know, whether theologically or or scientifically, or I should really say pseudoscientifically, you know, that views according to which all right, that the underlying fabric of reality is this seamless tapestry of tightly interwoven threads where everything or or like a clockwork mechanism and everything is you know synchronized with everything else, and the entirety of reality is ultimately this you know giant mass. You know, uh, scale harmony or you know, carefully orchestrated dance of you know, perfectly you know, integrated and synthesized with each other elements. um, That if that were what the ultimate nature of reality was, then it would seem as though, yeah, indeed, uh, a kind of radical, hard nosed, uh, you know, reductive determinism would be the only really defensible picture, and that would involve the notion that we would have to somehow or other. Uh, argue away and deny as illusory epiphenomenal, et cetera, anything like free subjectivity. So if you're going to include, you know, free subject within, you know, pre or non-subjective substance, uh, Zizek, one of his arguments is that, well, for that substance to have given rise to and to still, you know, hold out, you know, some wiggle room for free subjects, it has to be an inconsistent, not, you know, coordinated, not fully pulled together, self-integrated, field or domain. Um, and, you know, so there's, you know, there's that in the background of Zizek's reasoning is kind of a key line of argumentation for him. Um, but, you know, for me, I'm interested in this, though, in a much more, you might say, specific, targeted, and concrete way, which is that, you know, if you talk about our human-mindedness and light mindedness ourselves as, you know, subjects in this way, um, well, of course, the level of reality dealt with by natural science that is clearly most proximate to this and most relevant would be our central nervous systems right talking about you know our human bodies and in particular these aspects of our bodies that you know we know have you know certain key relationships with you know what we take to be our not only sentient but also sapient subjectivity that we are the kinds of minded beings that we are Um, and so obviously the brain the body has a great deal to do with that, um, and you know, I think that you know, Zizek's intuition that he, te- you know, that we've just been talking about, that you know, he tends to articulate in a very big picture, you know, very broad fashion. Um, I think is is works even better if you zero in on the interface between a theory of subjectivity, as both he and I are after philosophically. And neurobiology in particular, with the brain as, you know, you might say the, the part of physical reality, uh, you know, or nature is dealt with by the natural sciences, most directly relevant to ourselves as subjects. Um, and, you know, here, you know, I think that, you know, the idea that we often have is that, oh, well, you know, as, as living beings, we're organisms. And, of course, even the etymology of the word organism has to do with organization, And that means that our bodies are these elegantly designed, even if not by an intelligent designer, only by, you know, the, uh, you know, forces of evolution working over the arc of natural history that, you know, ourselves and including our central nervous systems, you know, these are. Uh, You know, organic in the sense of their wholes or or totalities, where all of the parts work together uh, uh, smoothly and in a synchronized manner uh, to create a functional whole. Um, And you know, for me, one thing that you know that is important about especially psychoanalysis is that when it comes to our mindedness, to our psychical subjectivity, you know, one of the fundamental features of Freud's perspective that, you know, is bequeathed to everyone after him in analysis, including Lacan, um, is that we are, you might, as you might say, creatures of conflict, that, you know, our psyches are structured around, you know, various antagonisms, and that clashes between, you know, different, uh, you know, emotions, motivations, and, and cognitions, that these sorts of conflicts that we have are really the fault lines around which, you know, our, Mindedness or our subjectivity even take shape. And I think that when you look at what neurobiology for the past few decades has been doing, is that whether you know self-consciously or not, and it varies depending on you know the, the particular neurobiologist you're dealing with, um, that there's an awareness that you know not only is the brain not really all that unified, that it consists of a diverse array of systems and subsystems but that these things can often come into conflict with each other or can be very mismatched and out of sync. I mean, the most glaring example would be the tensions between evolutionarily archaic brain stems and evolutionarily very recent neocortices. Um, but you know, there are other versions of this too. And that you know, evolution doesn't demand that we have, for instance, optimally integrated and, perf- you know, and maximally functional Central nervous systems; it has a relatively low bar to clear, which is basically good enough to survive long enough to reproduce. But that can allow for, so long as it's not detrimental to population level uh, reproduction numbers, you know, that can allow all of these, you know, you might say bugs, glitches, uh, you know, uh, uh, suboptimal, uh, you know, kludge-like, uh, you know, uh, arrangements of elements of even our bodily being to persist. And so I'm interested in, in a way, looking at how it might be that certain features of our minded subjectivity are dependent upon the suboptimal, you know, glitch-ridden uh, 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 configuration of our bodies as, as biology and especially neurobiology uh, 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 portray them. Um, and so drawing this link between the psychoanalytic emphasis on on conflict or dysfunction generated by tensions between incompatible elements, being something which we see show up even on the side of, you know, the underlying bodily basis for all of this in the guise of, of the human central nervous system.
0: Yeah, so uh, we're running a little long right now, but oh, I just, sorry. we're on to the final question. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, but congrats to anyone who has made it this far. Um, But final kind of question, um, you kind of were talking about Lacanian and Freudian drive theory, um, but you also like point to Lacan's famous uh, statement regarding like the 68 revolutionaries who said they simply desired a new master. Um, And so there's a certain like pessimism to psychoanalytic theory about the possibility of getting kind of hooked around a certain thing and unable to escape. But there's also, as you've been alluding to in drive theory, a sort of radical negativity that allows for a sort of radical transformation. So kind of to wrap all this up, kind of with you and Zizek kind of using psychoanalysis to kind of rethink politics, how does drive theory kind of give us a possibility for thinking about transformation, both personal and political?
1: Well, here, interestingly, drive theory cuts both ways and in a way that's appropriate because, you know, for Freud, different versions of his drive theory as he laid it out at different stages of his intellectual itinerary always involved an emphasis on conflicting sets of drives, right? Um, And the final version of this dual drive Picture was, you know, for him, the antagonism between Eros or the life drives on the one hand and the Todestrieb, the death drive or drives on the other hand. Um, and, you know, of course, in, in the 20th century, I mean, going back to, uh, you know, figures like uh, Wilhelm Reich in the 1930s, there began to be efforts by certain uh, uh, Marxists to put Marxism and psychoanalysis into close connection with each other. And one of the projects I'm working on now involves revisiting, you know, these intersections. But um, you could say that um, in terms of the development of first Freudo-Marxism, starting with Reich and company in, in the earlier part of the 20th century, you know, and then in the French context, in the post-war period, the emergence of lacano marxism and, you know, certainly Zizek and, and and, you know, some of his fellow travelers, including myself, you know, could be described as lacano Marxist uh, in a certain way. That um, initially, of course, one of the services that psychoanalysis uh, seemed to offer these Marxists was, it helps us account for why Marx's more optimistic predictions about social progress have not come to pass, right? So why is it that, you know, even if you know the proletariat begins to see how exploited they are, the manner in which capitalism takes advantage of them. You know why they still seem to, you know, uh, hug their chains. You know why they just are content to continue to sing in their cages, et cetera. And you know the idea of unconscious libidinal investments in our own oppression, exploitation, et cetera. You know this, you know, side of psychoanalysis, um, you know, was came to be seen by certain 20th century Marxists as. This is important to take on board, and if we take it on board, we're not entitled to be as optimistic as you know earlier, more classical Enlightenment-style Marxists were. Um, but you know, given the fact that you know it, there's not just one overriding direction to our libidinal economies, that we have different drives that are pulling different directions, you know, that of course also holds out the idea that although there might be, you could say, powerful forces that make it so that. You know the enlightenment idea of know the truth and the truth shall set you free is far you know far too cheap easy, and optimistic you know that we may be much more deeply libidinally complicit with our own unfortunate circumstances than we might want to acknowledge you know that nonetheless to come back to the idea of you know death drive is radical negativity we also have this capacity for you know being able at certain moments at least to not only you know mitigate or step back from our you know, this inertia, but to even perhaps, you know, smash it to pieces and make way for something dramatically different. Um, so it's like with Benjamin's situation, you know, cha- you know, there's real grounds for severe pessimism, but not for total and complete fatalism. Um, you know, there will be, there will remain, so long as this is, you might say, the human condition, there will remain at least cause for some minimal degree of hope.
0: Right, a very radical ambivalence. Um, so, kind of final question. You kind of alluded to this briefly. Uh, what are you working on now? Kind of jumping off of this.
1: Well, and since I've already uh, tried everyone's patience by running a bit long, I should be very quick here. So, really, I have three book projects in the work right works right now. Two that I am planning to finish in the next year or so. One of them tentatively entitled "Infinite Greed: Money, Marxism, Psychoanalysis." Um, you know, which is you know very interested in um, closely integrating a lot of the, the, the work at the intersection of Marxism and psychoanalysis has tended to, on the Marxist side, focus on Marx, uh, Marxist theories of ideology and their relationship to psychoanalysis. But I actually am very interested in exploring, um, I think at this point still, underexplored linkages between Marx's critique of political economy and really the economic nuts and bolts of texts like, you know, Das Kapital und Gondressa, and, you know, and to do so in a way informed by psychoanalysis and, of course, informing psychoanalysis in turn. So there's that book project. Um, There's a book I'm co-authoring with a fellow Lacanian, uh, Lorenzo Chiesa, um, where it's a a sort of debate book. And in it, um, uh, Lorenzo wants to argue that Lacan, Given his hesitations about indulging in any kind of philosophical ontology, at, in terms of religion is an agnostic, a very principled agnostic, whereas I want to argue that he's a, an especially radical sort of atheist. And so a debate about Lacan's relationship between, uh, with religion and you know one of us you know, arguing he's an atheist, the other he's an agnostic. And then finally, you know, I have this three-volume project uh, that I've been working on for years, and volume two just came out a few months ago. Um, And a year and a half from now, I get to step down from being department chair and take an extended sabbatical. And during that, I'm hoping to get at least close to finishing volume three. Um, which, you know, volume two deals with the ontology of nature that I need for the theory of subjectivity I'm interested in defending. And then the third and final volume will be, all right, that theory of subjectivity itself, now that I've laid the foundations for.
0: Yeah, I look forward. Those all sound fascinating. So Adrian Johnston, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so
1: much for having me. I really appreciate it.